torture cells. She was in torture and prison for something like seven years. Um, over and over, I came back to this name today because this name was spotted immediately by the uh, commando confiscating everything he could find of mine. And uh, this is a Persian, an Iranian woman poet whose very name, when he saw it, he immediately recognized it and he immediately confiscated this name. It's a name he already knew. It was proof he felt of something, that I knew her, that I might know her, that I was in with them, that she was in with us, that we were a problem, that she now was under suspicion, that she in fact has been under suspicion for a long time, because in fact she worked against the Shah as well, that now under the new regime she is just as suspicious as ever, and this wonderful seizure of, his name, of her name as he grabbed on it showed me the magical and terrible power that writers go on having under any kind of dictatorial government. Because of Kefi and because of the work I did with Reza, I went to Iran, invited by Iranian feminists, um, to help celebrate the, the first time that International Women's Year had been celebrated in Iran for 50 years. I went to address a group I thought about this size, maybe. I did not know there would be these enormous demonstrations. I had no notion of what, in fact, would occur. We hoped to see the birth of a women's movement in Iran, but that it would be an explosion, I never expected. Needless to say, I was delighted. Uh, but also what I saw, the systematic patriarchy of Iran, the enormous oppression of circumstances for women there, the Jador, worn as a symbol of solidarity with Islam and against Western imperialism during the demonstrations, was now being forced upon women, and it was this they rose up against, since they will choose what they wear, but they also know what it means when you are told to wear the veil again. It's thank you very much, or not even thank you very much at all, for what you have done for the revolution, now you can get back and go down and be nothing again. They would not do this. And so they took to the streets in fantastic numbers and with a kind of ardor that I have never seen in feminist demonstrations anywhere, not here, not in Italy, not in France. It was the ardor born out of already being in an insurrection, being against the tanks, being walking out into a street with tanks in it, against guns, risking your life to rid your place of a tyrant. And then to be told that you would now be second-class citizens under a new order you, in fact, had brought about, but which was being swept out of your hands by a revival of religious reaction and male supremacy, Needless to say, this is more than women who have fought this hard will reasonably endure. And what is magnificent is that somewhere or another, there was enough groundswell, enough courage, 
enough consciousness, pride, determination, that what happened to Algerian women did not happen to Iranian women. Algerian women were forced right back into the old condition after they had given their lives for the revolution. Uh, as it is now, women in Iran are half a person. That is, they may, two of them, witness one document. Uh, they need permission from their owner to work or to travel. Uh, they have nothing approaching uh, equal pay, and it's indeed what they want. They also want childcare and abortion. It's now three years, three to seven years, for both the doctor and the woman for an abortion under the new regime. Um, and uh, I suppose the most impressive thing perhaps I could say to you about the condition of women in Iran is that 65% of them are illiterate in the cities and 92% are illiterate in the countryside. These are the government's own figures. And so the women in, this, in Tehran, where I was, women composed of women in high school, women in college, women in employment, women who were secretaries, particularly secretaries for the government, since the Chador order was about the government, remember. They went into the streets, also nurses, women with any kind of job, lots of housewives as well. How many of the women in the countryside were affected by these demonstrations is very difficult to say. Their situation is of such enormous oppression. They are so totally owned by the males who govern them and by the religion that oppresses them at the same time that it is very difficult to say what kind of choice they could ever make about these demonstrations. They did take place, though, in Tabriz and in Isfahan, as well as in Tehran. The first one, the 8th of March, was a spontaneous demonstration. In fact, they all really were. Um, beginning at, the, at Tehran University and going through the streets of the city to the central committee, um, where the women were fired on and dispersed. Um, but 5,000 women, just all by themselves, grassroots, autonomous, as a purely spontaneous uprise of human beings, took to the streets against attackers when they arrived there and against attackers all the way along the route. Because from the time we began demonstrating, men amassed outside of our marches and came very deliberately, in fact, they were even brought in buses, to beat us up. So that we demonstrated every single day at the risk of our lives. Three women were stabbed, we were stoned, we were called prostitutes. We were called, oh, reactionary, counter-revolutionary, savak, whore, uh, cabaret dancer, whatever. <laughs> but the women I marched with, their courage, their cool, the training that they had had in the insurrection, they the first women in Islam to rise up, to refuse to be sold out, the first of the largest group 
in this entire section of one whole part of the world it is Islam, one great civilization, one great world religion, one great unit of people now in a place of regeneration and renaissance who have been colonized and bullied and pushed around and robbed and rendered poor for hundreds of years under the Ottoman Turks and then under the Westerners. But what I wanted to see when I was there was I wanted to see the demonstrations be covered by the world press because this is how we work in CAFI. This is how, in fact, we work in the kind of work I do. We need communications in politics. And you can say that it's sort of, there's a media joke, if it isn't on TV, it hasn't happened. I find that really sort of media hype. But there is a certain sense in which it has a kind of truth. Women in Brooklyn and in Marseille, if they don't see the Iranian women on television, they didn't know about it for the most part. Or they might read a very tiny article. Or they might read nothing at all if we don't get the journalists there. But if women in Brooklyn and Marseille see the women in Iran, they are at one with them. And this is in fact what happened. Because the women in Iran were real enough, close enough through communications, through managing to get some truth out of the lie machine, they had an effect upon the women's movement throughout the world that they would never have had otherwise. Because, and you see, what we're dealing with now then is media control. They control what you see. They control whether you see it on TV or whether my little mother in St. Paul sees it on TV. And it's not in our hands, practically, unless we, in fact, take control or exercise every kind of, of pressure that we can upon the media, which is very difficult to do because they are, in fact, pressured by government as well as by commerce. But the media, then, is in control, as it were, of historical perception. As a historian, I find that appalling. Moreover, in Iran, you could never see the demonstrations on TV. Censorship is entire in Iran. Gobsedeh, a very fascistic personality who controls television there, never let one little bit of the women's demonstration show on TV, except one night when he let voice over tell you not to go to them. Moreover, everything coming out of the country began to be censored, beginning with the women's demonstrations. They were hugely embarrassing. Always a good sign, I feel. And uh, so very soon, after we began to get them on TV, after the international feminists there, myself and others, called press conferences and bitched and pleaded and did all the things you do to the TV man, great, big, huge, important fellow, to go out and bother to take pictures of this. And then he thought it was a pretty good story when he went and he wanted to keep going. There were hardly any women in media in Iran. Um, 
But then very soon he couldn't get them out. They'd pull the plug on the satellite. They would uh, scan everything through Iranian TV. You had to play all your pictures on their TV first before they could get on the airplane. Everything began to be controlled. All 16 millimeter film was automatically seized. This was bad news for us because we were, among other things, making film ourselves. Um, but it was very clear, though, from the beginning, because of the danger that attended these demonstrations, that maybe if, if it isn't on TV, it hasn't happened, but for sure, if it isn't on TV, you can even get hurt. The protection of publicity, the protection for the Iranian women as they demonstrated that those pictures would be shown all over the world, and the more they got beat up, the more it would show everywhere and force the government to begin to give them protection. And indeed, there were, from the beginnings, pretenses of protection, but no real protection. And so the protection that we got finally was from a group of male volunteers, brothers, friends, lovers, people like this who would make a great circle around us and with their lives defend ours. An amazing thing to see in feminist marches. I must say, this participation, and a very beautiful thing as well, that there are, in fact, men who are comrades and who will go the whole way over an issue like ours uh, when we have gone so far over theirs. But I had rarely seen this kind of brotherly um, commitment, an actual commitment in physical danger. But it seemed to me from the beginning that if we did not have all possible publicity, the women's demonstrations in Iran would be a massacre or they would be absolutely crushed. And so we tried for the protection of publicity. Uh, I might still be in jail, I suppose, without it. But then on the other hand, I might never have been arrested if I had simply gone to Iran and never talked to the media to try to get press coverage for Iranian women, uh, I would perhaps never have been noticed. And certainly probably not noticed by the Iranian government since I only went to make this little tiny short speech. There are a lot of awkward moralities in all this that I'm describing to you. How you in fact get publicity over a movement how you manipulate and exploit the media without being manipulated and exploited yourself. The morality, too, of protecting your friends. And I think, again, of my carelessness in having Salim Danishva's name in my notebook when I was caught, since I knew for three days I would be um, arrested. But I never suspected this one small piece of paper and I never suspected that it would be an issue that I would know a very famous poet in Iran, the most famous woman poet. Why wouldn't I? Why would that compromise it? Um, of course, the minute I saw him see it and take it, I realized I had. In, when I was arrested, I had certain telephone numbers on my cuff, the way you cheat in Latin, you know, when you're in high school. Uh, and those I got rid of entirely. But this was one little tiny scrap of paper I hadn't even remembered I had. I'd already copied the number someplace else in a safe place, but I had still this one little piece of paper, this little oddment. 
In politics, on the other hand, you accept certain risks, risks that intellectuals need not have always have faced. Like journalists, I think intellectuals have been brought up to think that they have immunity if they preserve some form of objectivity. And with journalists, that of course means that you don't say much one thing or the other, but you will be able to get in and out of the country. Um, and for all this, though, when it happened to me, I wanted my civil rights respected. I wanted to talk to a lawyer. I had, in fact, a very good one uh, in Iran. I wanted a phone call. I wanted explanations of why I was being expelled, which was never explained to me at all. Uh, and moreover, I was very aware of never having done anything wrong. Uh, because suddenly I had no rights, like the archetypal totalitarian state, like incarceration, for example, in a mental hospital, where you have absolutely no, no rights, though if you murdered 45 people in a row, you would have rights. Um, but there, at least, one is um, betrayed by friends, and you wait in a kind of forlorn hope. But at the hands of strangers, to suddenly become absolutely helpless in the hands of strangers, in the hands of the state. The situation of books, of Kafka, Solzhenitsyn, Reza's own descriptions of Sabah arrest. It makes you think about the state, which is part of your job, actually, part of my job. It's usually, though, we imagine it as a kind of a duel between the individual and the state, between the human rights worker and the state. We do not think of it as a kind of stranglehold. Uh, but it does make you think of how the state encroaches everywhere through the passport system alone, which is quite a new system. I believe until the beginning of this century, very few states required one. Tsarist Russia, I believe, was one of the few. Um, identity cards, driver's licenses, how almost everybody in America now can be found at any moment through their driver's license. Uh, and if you refuse to get a driver's license, then you can't cash a check. So you see you have no access to money. Um, the credit system and the cross-references it has with civilian and mental police. Uh, we are governed now to a degree we never have been, a degree that would appall the Founding Fathers and other early theorists who wanted less government, less rule of kings. Whether capitalist or socialist, the power of the state is actually growing in our time at an enormous rate. And we have, and this is the pity of it, we have no real ideology against this. We have no terms even to deal with this Though anarchy would be some help, we acquaint, who has acquaintance with anarchist theory in our society? Who even reads it anymore? Well, someone, I hope. Uh, but uh, we do not anywhere, we look in the spectrum, get any real reinforcement for our, and this must be universal, has anyone ever re-registered their damn car? The enormity of this punitive interference in your life on the part of the state, the elaborate ways it has to catch you, control you, drive you bananas, make you fill out forms again and again. And ultimately, though we do not like to look at that, 
ultimately it has for every infringement it has a cage waiting at the end of the road it has some form of punishment which is the total loss of your freedom and everybody lives just within that fence and thinks that as long as they're being quote sensible it will be all right the authority of the state moreover is accepted everywhere and this i think is the hardest thing of all in dealing with political prisoners i found that only talking to people about torture could make them think nothing less than that could make them challenge the notion that this person legally was supposed to be in the control of whatever state was mistreating. And I didn't find even the torture had much effect, but it had some, because no matter how fideistic I think most people are about the state, and Americans now are terribly so, uh, we've lost whatever sense of republicanism we had in the old sense of that term. Um, Torture really didn't even make them think that much either. I think it made them not want to think. Because you see, if someone is being tortured, most people will then acknowledge that after all, probably the government doesn't have the right to torture you. Well, that's marvelous. But this was about the only way in all the years I worked for CAFE that I could ever really reach people was to describe to them the tortures of the political prisoners in Iran. Um, most people, I, I found, uh, believe that people deserve their government. They even like to imagine that they elected it or got it through sloth or something else. Well, of course, we all know how the Iranians got the Shah of Iran. They got him from America as a CIA uh, puppet and ha had him for 25 years. So if they deserve their government, what on earth do we deserve? Um, other people will feel that mostly though you may not deserve your government, you're stuck with it, so you should obey it anyway. Or other people will say, well, I don't want my government, remembering Vietnam, invading your government. In other words, the only way that what your government's doing can be stopped is if my government stops it. That is that we're all little children and you have to have the grown-up come in, the government, and make the other government stop it through invading them. Well, of course, other governments do not police other governments simply because they want them to obey international law. They have real reasons of conquest. And this is the purpose of invasions, no matter what they are called. Uh, and so one was never talking about our government invading anybody else's. In fact, the lie of it is, of course, our government already has. It gave the Iranians the Shah under the CIA, and it has given most of Latin America it's dictators. And the growth of dictatorship in Latin America alone. We like to think that there is very little torture in the world, that it is something that went out with Auschwitz uh, and with the Nazis. In fact, torture has increased. There is more torture in more countries now by 10 times, probably, than there was 30 and 40 years ago. We have now arrived at a situation where most of the republics in South America are not republics at all anymore. They are, in fact, dictatorships where torture is routinely practiced upon every single person, practically, who is arrested. So that, in fact, torture has become, you see, a way to govern, 
to follow me. The torture is a form now of government. It is how you make a country, quote, work. It is how, in fact, Brazil has worked for quite a while. You can, in fact, really block out dissent. You can intimidate whole populations. No one can resist torture. Everyone is afraid of it. It becomes only more sophisticated. So that, in fact, torture now is a form of policy for such countries. And it is a kind of a, follow this, a kind of an international policy now, too. In the, the CIA dictatorships, the CIA also trains the torturers. The ones in Iran were routinely trained in the United States. They may still be uh, if uh, the new regime needs uh, some sort of um, secret police, uh, though they have so many of them left floating about without work. Um, if we go outside the government, if we go outside the your government, my government model, most people get lost. They feel isolated individuals, that in fact there is nothing they can do if it is not your government and my government. And I think there that the model of the United Nations has not really helped us that much. It does not really provide the force, the real help, um, Probably, for me anyway, Amnesty International was a much more important foundation in this respect, in freeing political prisoners, in working for human rights across boundaries, and KV was too. But also, I think we have to reorient ourselves quite entirely. If this is the kind of way in which we are going to see the issue of human rights, we have to divorce ourselves, I think, from allegiance to our countries, to certainly our governments, if you'd like to make a distinction there. Uh, we will have to insist on being citizens here or wherever we are, but not subjects. That is, the government does not control me, nor has it the right in all these stated ways. We must bring the CIA and foreign policy as it is represented by whatever country we belong to under control. If, in fact, we are going to be in some way responsible for what this country's idiot and vicious foreign policy is, we are also responsible to make it be something else. However, you must recognize that it is almost impossible even to discover what it is, because it is all secret. What, in fact, is the CIA's role under the new regime in Iran? What ties does it have with Khomeini? What kind of arms sales are going on? Are agents still being trained? What, in fact, is happening? Now, if, in fact, all foreign policy is run under the rubric of national security, and secrecy, you see the depth, the enormity of the problem. I think one begins by regarding in government as an incursion, a dangerous incursion in civil life and civil liberties. And always to be watched over, I think, and policed by the world at large, by citizens at large. 
This means that we have to stop being subjects as we were once of kings and dictatorships and so forth. We, in fact, have to take on an enormous burden of citizenship if we are going to try to have an effect not only upon our government and other governments, but to be a real help to fellow citizens all throughout the world who are under an increasing kind of abuse as torture increases, as dictatorial powers by the state increase, because it is becoming now very much a matter between what one can hope to maintain as human freedom and what is being lost and eroded more and more abroad and here as well. And unless we act as though human rights were world rights, irregardless of boundaries, nation states, and the idea of nationalism itself, with all its attendant um, oh, tribalism, superstition, xenophobia, um, all of the rest of um, that, all those things that make a uh, rock sail through the air and hit somebody. For women, this is not, I think, to divorce oneself from all this is not really very difficult. We were made, I think, for this kind of work. We are effectively disenfranchised and deprived of representation or power by governments, all governments. I must say, even more here than in most places. We are an interior colony, a subordinate class governed from above, but we are below the level of citizen status. We have very little invested in patriotism, a word like patriarchy that betrays its end and origins to us. Transparent word, patriotic. We are, I think, natural internationalists we love to disregard boundaries, and we are everywhere. So we have, as it were, transcended a lot of these boundaries already. Our, adamant, our attitude towards government is not proprietary, like my government, my wonderful government, I believe in what it does, or loyalistic, but adversarial. And this is, in fact, how you work in human rights work. You embarrass, you expose, you make it public knowledge. You could succeed, we could succeed finally against the Shaw internationally, I think, against the sort of media government collusion with the CIA government and the coup. We could succeed by exposing the truth. But I'll tell you, it was a very hard job. It was very difficult to get anything printed at all. They didn't want it. And when they don't want it, they won't take it. Uh, I wrote a long letter explaining the circumstances of my expulsion to the New York Times, the paper of record, as a matter of record, and they would not print a single word of it. And I asked them over and over on the op-ed, on the letters to the editor, you would think I might have some right to say myself, you know, how it went when I was expelled, how I was abused and pushed around and intimidated and held under armed guard for uh, 24 hours, how I was treated like sort of a time bomb, how I was denied all my rights and so forth. 
when after all the media is printing a version that I call Romani a male chauvinist pig or something. Now, I didn't, he won't, won't even doubt the truth of that statement. The thing is, I didn't make it. Uh, and uh, one does not have, apparently, a right to one's own say. I would think in a diplomatic international matter like that, whoever the person expelled were would, in a paper record, have every right to make that kind of letter published. And they would not entertain one word of it. Uh, it was very much the way it had been with Michael, it reminded me. But if you can, and as much as you can, expose and get out the truth and so forth, it encourages, and this was particularly true in Iran, it encourages dissent at home, and what dissent was present took heart, and in the absence of international interference, in the sense of invasion and so forth, and through their own great and beautiful courage, the dissenters overcame for a time and made the insurrection, which has then been, though it is still, I hope, in the balance, but it appears, alas, all too much to be a counter-revolution now under Khomeini's forces, where a new rule of force is being installed. Uh, and uh, nothing as vicious, perhaps, as the Shah, but many, many invasions of uh, human liberties, secret trials, um, executions, all the rest of it. Women and boundaries, women and governments. Women have, I feel, nothing to lose. They also have a great potential for internationalism itself. Um, and we have in the past cooperated I think, though, that we will not have a really explosive kind of international feminism. I realize it's very hot, so I'm going to cut this short and stop before I intended to, because you clearly can't endure it. Um, humanitarian pacifists, you know. Uh, I would like to say, finally, though, that what we are trying to establish is a new kind of feminist movement, and it came about through the women in Iran with the uprising, the explosion of women in Iran, international feminism, which had been a sort of cooperative get-together kind of thing, or friends in France and sisters in Rome and all that, it entered into a whole different phase. International feminism, with the eruption of women in Iran, became actually a force, that is, a force for international women's movement not a cooperative thing, not some gentle and delightful as it had been before, but now there is a kind of enormous energy that comes along with that, that is what we are trying to begin to um, make some sort of vehicle in, in a group that we began by calling the Circle of Support and may end up calling international feminism something or another. But um, its purpose is to make an ongoing network, um, an ongoing force of support for women everywhere to organize a structure that can focus on one area or another, but in general for oppressed women throughout the world to oppose male nationalism and governments everywhere, 
the form of patriarchy in our time, that is the form of the nation state and male supremacy, and uh, as it is institutionalized in the state, the home, the family, the sciences, learning, and culture. Um, so it seems to me that we are in a position, women throughout the world, with the beginning, I think, of a real explosion in Iran is the beginning of an entire circle of women throughout the world. Uh, and I'll just close by telling you what I think that could produce. Uh, it could produce protest, movement, or revolution. Terms with different meanings depending on the speed or even the efficacy one has in mind. What I have in mind is this, an international feminism which could become a huge force in the liberation of women everywhere into the formation of a circle around the globe of women insurgents against the oldest and most pervasive and universal institution of government, of oppression, that is patriarchy itself. And also against religious rule and bigotry, nationalism, tribalism, every type of male violence. But in attacking that, women become a power, a political force for socialism, for human rights, for political and economic equality, for ecological sanity, and against war. I believe we have nothing to lose. I believe we have everything to gain. And we have a million times, as many million times, as many millions as there are women chances of our freedom, our whole collective freedom, if we act as one long-suffering group. Male governments rule us. Each patriarchal state, male governments cooperate in condoning each other's oppression of women. To oppose this, by the way, is called interfering in the domestic affairs of another state. It sounds like a great idea. It sounds, in fact, like what we have done for political prisoners for years. Isn't it interesting that all the subgroups, the minorities, the poor, the women, if anything is done for their human rights, it's interfering in domestic affairs. And moreover, the next excuse is that it is against national security. The freedom of women threatens national security. I like that. That has a very promising sound. We are one long-suffering people, women, one captive collective, one mass suborned and despised through history, one nation in bondage under patriarchal gods, the news of our defeat passed on in bitterness from mother to daughter, even among the exiles, the lesbians and Amazons. We have nothing left to suffer except freedom. Great pillaged and burned, hidden in veils like bags, lest our presence rebuke and the cruelties against us, reviled, hustled, harassed, sold, stolen, turned into currency, and forced to sell ourselves one more time to stay alive and feed another, more vulnerable than ourselves. Millennia of this, the files of women throughout time, throughout history, throughout the long, horrible story of our imprisonment everywhere, 
The time of our freedom was before time. All we have ever known is the other, the inferior, the lesser, the least. In this year or another, in this city or another, Baghdad in 700, Athens 700 before that, Paris in 1700s, where a revolution deprived us again. In all times or places we have been subject to the same gods, the same men, the same system, wherever, but always divided, ruled by the family, by male ownership, of father or husband or son or priest, pastor, mullah or rabbi, below even the level of state contact or civil status, like property, like pets, like minors, divided till now from each other, from ourselves. We have nothing new to learn except unity. Attacked everywhere, we have nothing more to study about violence except learning how to fight back. Isolated, persecuted, confined, circumscribed, quarantined, limited to purda, we have nothing left to experience but comradeship, selfhood, and the euphoria of sisters breaking loose. This is my idea, but my idea of international feminism is, is that it could be the, one of the most explosive forces in human affairs since the era, era when men, <clears throat> since the era of men when patriarchy, class society, slavery were inaugurated. My idea of international feminism is a great wind of freedom, sweeping us from all corners of the world into one proud, free people at last. It has been a long time. After all we've been through, and we have been through it together, I think that only in international feminism do we find our way out. Thank you.
for yet another amendment. That amendment being this, that there should be an amendment making it mandatory that the proceedings of Congress, and I would extend it federal, state, and municipal government bodies, there should be an amendment to the Constitution making it mandatory that the proceedings of Congress be broadcast as they occur on radio and, and on television so that we have an informed citizen. We should have such a amendment. If people think that it's ridiculous, no. then we don't need news. We don't need news. Then we don't need newspapers. Suppose we had, had television first and no newspapers. Then I said we should have a. Uh, so let's say we had stopped with TV. <coughs> I had said, Miss Miller, we should have an amendment making it mandatory that the proceedings of Congress be broadcast in newspapers. We as long as all we have TV though. It sounds so silly, so simple, but I think we need such an amendment. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I think it's a very good idea. Yes. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. What we're going to suggest, if there are a few questions from the floor, and then we'd like to also invite everyone to stay for a reception afterwards, they'll be in the lounge. We'd like some more dialogue with Kate. Yeah. I went to a really strange press I didn't know about that. It was Ramsey Clark and who else? Were they were supposed to be representing some group? that Ramsey Clark had where he very, just just when Khomeini was still in Paris. And, um, oh, and that perhaps Khomeini had a message for Carter, also that perhaps he wanted to make contact with the left, but that contact with the left sort of dwindled out. I think people universally thought well of Khomeini before, well, in Paris he sounded great. Uh, and, uh, then historians tell me that he wrote really wretched, misogynistic stuff years ago and so on, but I don't read, you know, too many mullahs uh, and so on. So I, I believed the stuff from Paris, you know, as many, many, many people did. And then you kept hearing more terrible news day after day, the executions, the secret trials, the whole, I mean, it's actually a setup that really just does exactly what the old one did. I mean, not on such a big scale, but it does, in fact, the same infringements of international law. Yeah. What do you think will happen to our friend Raisin? 
I worry about Reza under the new regime. Uh, I only saw him once when I was there, and we weren't able to talk because we were surrounded by reporters uh, who function on social occasions sort of like spies. And uh, Reza was obviously keeping a very low profile, although he was writing and publishing. Now, when I was going to leave, I heard that certain writers had been silenced, and I was worried he might be one of them. But we have checked with his wife, and she says nothing like this. So um, I don't find it impossible that he would be in the future, uh, or Salim either. Um, I, this, this is a, a very repressive regime right now. Uh, and um, there you are. And if, if, in fact, it is typical to say completely, for example, the television is off about 24 hours a day. The other two hours it shows cartoons, and for one hour you get to watch mullahs unless there's some very special program. So um, there's a little more freedom of speech in the newspaper, but not that much either. And um, more books are current and so forth, but I, I, would, I would still be very afraid of the repression and silencing of writers under the present circumstances. Yes. directly. Um, certainly there was um, there was um, every kind of thing that would oh, make make a good image for him. Now that was a lot of money. The Shaw had a lot of ways to buy good PR. One was to give millions to American universities uh, and so forth. Now what he gave to media I don't know or anything you know, actual payoff, I don't know of. I would be no, by no means be surprised if such existed. But I also would like to suggest to you that it isn't just sort of the bribe. It's the guys upstairs don't like stories that say he does this torture stuff, so we're not gonna print what you say, lady, or mister, or whatever. So that um, it's just, um, it's established kind of as a policy that the Shah is a good guy, and so forth. And that's that's on a sort of you know more punitive kind of it's party line to say that rather than just that he's able to buy an ad for himself. He did give money to life when it was reemerged, they say. And he looks very good in a bathing suit in that. The first issue of Life that came out again made him look just like your suburban Charlie in LA. Yeah.
concern. Well, as I said, I was invited to go to Iran by feminists there, so it wasn't all that much question of how I was going to be received. They wanted me to come. And uh, my being there was part of an International Women's Day celebration. Were there other uh, women No, two others were invited, Simone de Beauvoir, and um, she was unable to come, and Bernadette Devlin was also unable to come. But I brought messages from many parts of the United States and many different feminist groups here, and also from Italy, and also from France. There were also um, French feminists there as well, and um, one Canadian, and there were also, um, later when the French delegation arrived, which was after the demonstrations had started, um, they arrived in support, and they were French, Norwegian, English, and then two groups of Islamic women, uh, Egyptian and Moroccan as well. Well, were the foreign women regarded as having more advanced ideology? Uh, oh, I, oh, no way. Well, it wasn't at all for media exposure, but it certainly was to be in solidarity with the women in Tehran while they were demonstrating and in their danger and so on and so forth. It was a very important, not only symbolic, way to express our solidarity. There were demonstrations throughout the world in support of them, too. Uh, see, you know, when you're, it's, it's easy to look at it as you do, but I mean, if you're in this country, and its government denies you all your rights, maybe your only recourse is people in other countries uh, or an international movement to give you some support. Um, this is, in fact, the plight of the political prisoners in Iran all the years we worked on their behalf against the Shah. You have still that same thing. Dissent was almost completely suppressed. Uh, in Iran itself under the Shah. Only at the very end was any possible. And um, as for the feminists in Iran right now, they are very, very severely repressed. They, um, they had established for themselves an office, a phone, mimeograph, the whole thing. They were having begun as a very small group and then being joined by these as many as 20,000 on the 12th of March. It's enormous demonstrations. Then, of course, what they wished to do was organize and establish a mass base. But they were never able to do this because the government took away their office through elaborate bureaucratic hoo-ha, and they don't have it anymore. And I have been able to talk with them only once, and we don't speak freely. Uh, because it's all being listened in on, which was typical of when I was there, too. Uh, in fact, the hotel people just told us they were listening in, but they really didn't need to tell us because they used to breathe in the phone so much uh, and drop it and stuff like that. But they, they have said to us that they can only meet in groups of five and ten now and that for them to move in any large way is totally impossible. And this was in fact what we have, what we are afraid would happen and why we are so eager to organize a circle of support for them throughout the United States, both here and in Los Angeles. We've established 10 chapters at various colleges and um, throughout the world, uh, starting with the Paris group, who are the international 
headquarters. Did I forget the last? Oh, what can they expect from the situation now? Not too much. I don't think that they're getting anything. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not going to fall into that trap of, you know, who's better off under the Shah and so on. He was Hitler. His, his was a hideous reign of terror. And of course it's wonderful that that's gone. But if all that is put in its place, and was put there, by the way, by women who helped this insurrection, in fact, they led it in the last days. They were put in the front and they faced enormous dangers and really, you know, have with their, with their lives have risked, you know, everything to have, in fact, the democratic freedoms and so on and the, the liberation which the revolution was to stand for. And instead, now, thing after thing after thing of, of their hopes and expectations are chipped away. Uh, the tragedy of such a situation. If, um, imagine the frustration, which I've, um, I believe is building up throughout the population, but it was the women, remember, who demonstrated the first against it. So I feel that they have nothing to expect from this, uh, unless, uh, you know, it's the old thing of, well, you know, if the whole group is better off than and so on, but if the whole group is better off than at the expense of half of the group, how much better off is not only that, half of the group, but the whole? And nothing, it seems to me, uh, is going to advent, be advantageous uh, to uh, the Iranian people to have a repressive religious dictatorship. Um, that's worse than theocracy. That's theocracy with a dictator, too. I mean, that's really bad news. Well, the army more or less didn't do anything. The Air Force gave out its weapons, and that's what turned the tide. Uh, they gave its wep their weapons to the people. You talked about the New York Times not giving you any press. Could you comment on the unfortunate way that NBC News portrayed your visit there, that you were not invited, that you were an outsider, that the feminists were not Well, see, I wasn't home watching it. You were. <laughs> yes. I mean, no matter how many times I told them, I was invited, I guess they can say I wasn't, you know. Uh, and I don't, I, I suppose I could waste a whole day trying to get equal time to, you know. But uh, it, it is uh, astonishing how how they will lie and, and uh, keep on doing it. Um, this was which one? NBC. NBC. Hmm. Mm -hmm. and they, they had a feminist yeah, the comité usually had some sort of agent there who would sort of stand up at every press conference and say, ah, her, and so on. And um, they, they were, but most of the reporters would just sort of laugh because they were so obviously plants of the government. Um, Yeah, and you're in a lot of danger if you don't wear it, too. You're, you're really going to be pushed around a lot in the street if you don't wear it. It's, it's, a, it's a thing of, of physical danger now, you see. Um, and, I mean, what a kind of intimidation. 
But if you don't wear certain clothing, I mean, how bizarre. Someone will beat you up, you know? But, I mean, what a, what a right out front way to intimidate a group of people, too. And it's, I don't know, you, you, you rem you're reminded of Chinese shoes and, and um, hoop skirts and, and skirts all together. Um, when, when I was um, maybe 15 or 16, if you didn't wear a dress, you were subject to a lot of ridicule in the street and so forth. Um, yeah. Yeah, you bet they are. They, they have to. It's, it's, I, I was, some students told me that they talked to their mother and she said that all her sisters, who are university students, were wearing them because, and she was too, because she said otherwise, you know, they'll stone us. Um, the old thing. <coughs> yes. Yeah, we also don't know anything about what's going on. We can't get any news. They don't want us to have any. Yeah. Well, I don't think anybody ever elected Khomeini, nor did he ever march at the barricades. He walked in off an airplane, uh, and um, he had organized a kind of a takeover. Uh, which is now a very severe thing. Do you realize that that government is a secret government, that the Revolutionary Council, nobody can know the names, none of them are elected either. So um, they make all those, uh, you know, execution lists and so on and so forth. That, that's, um, the, the, you're not talking about Oh, sort of that Iranian women got together and said, oh, we'll back Khomeini or anything. No. Uh, but I think if they were deceived, everybody.